All right. Hey, this past week I had a great experience that frankly happens to me a lot. Uh, I met somebody out in the marketplace who found a life-changing connection with Jesus because of our church. Uh, her name is Morgan. Uh, she works at a rental car place here in Savannah. Uh, I won't tell you why I was at the rental car place other than to say that my wife's car apparently has some kind of a distracted driver magnet installed somewhere in it. Uh, and so for the second time in the three months we've had this car, it's in the shop and I'm at the rental car deal. But the good thing coming out of that, uh, getting hit a week or so ago, uh, is meeting Morgan. Now, Morgan and her friend Emma both work at this rental car place. Both are part of our church family. Both are really representing Jesus well in the marketplace. But Morgan told me that she found Christ at our church when she was a student at Georgia Southern. Man, her baptism was the first baptism that was done at Compassion Christian Church on the first Sunday. Isn't that great? Let's thank God, man. That's pretty exciting. And I'm telling you, the cool thing is, I was there, and I remember when she was baptized. I'm telling you, I remember the joy that broke out on the patio of Mill Creek Elementary School on that bright Sunday morning when she declared her faith in Jesus and was baptized in Him. But friends, I'm telling you, if there's anything that I like better than seeing somebody put their faith in Jesus and be baptized, is visiting with them three years later when they are strongly connected to our church and learning and growing in their faith and inviting their friends and serving Jesus with a joyful spirit. Now listen, that's what we call discipleship. Disciples are followers of Jesus who have found a life-changing relationship with Jesus who are now becoming just like him. And friends, that is normal. That's normal. Anything other than that is abnormal. Uh, when I drove away in that rental car, I thought, you know what? This is how it's supposed to be. People find Jesus. Their lives are changed by Jesus. They begin to live in ways that bring glory to Jesus. That's how it works, and it's cool. Now, last week, we started unpacking one of the most famous stories in the Bible where Jesus kind of stamped this value, this hope that people would find Jesus and be saved and then be changed by Jesus and live in ways that would bring glory to Jesus. So it's found in Luke chapter 15. How many of y'all got a Bible with you? Let me see who brought one on all of our campuses. Let me see if you got one. Analog, digital, that works for me. All right, good. Turn to Luke chapter 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've got a blue Bible and some of the chairs and some of the stacked on tables on some of our campuses. Uh, man, grab that blue Bible and turn to page 874 uh, and you'll be able to track with us right through this message today. And let me just say, if you don't have a Bible and if you want one, uh, you're welcome to take that blue Bible with you as long as you promise to read at least one line out of it every day. If you're not going to read it, don't take it. But if you'll read a line a day, man, you can have it, all right? Now, Luke chapter 15 is one of the most famous stories in the Bible that lets us know how the Father feels when someone who is lost is found. So look at verse 1. It says, The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus, as he was teaching. Now, friends, this is a pretty important detail. Some scholars think this story was told at a party at Matthew's house. Now, Matthew was a new disciple of Jesus who had literally left a dishonorable career as a crooked Roman tax collector in order to become a follower of Jesus. And as soon as he gave his life to Christ, he throws a party and he invites all of his old crazy friends who are far, far from God, just as he had been, so that they could come to that party and meet Jesus and be changed by him as he had been changed. Now, if this is true, imagine this setting. You got all these tax collectors who are just considered notorious sinners, I mean, financial traitors, financial sellouts to the invading Romans. And then you got Jesus at this dinner party with these notorious sinners, you know. And right outside the house, 
There's a crowd of people who have gathered because everybody's just fascinated by what Jesus is teaching and the miracles he's doing and all that stuff. And in that crowd is a very judgmental group of religious leaders. And they are judging Jesus for eating with Matthew. They're judging him for hanging out with sinners, uh, for even being around people like that. It says in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They just couldn't believe it. They, they couldn't believe that Jesus would, would care about these crummy people who had such a bad rap. But as we've seen over and over again, Jesus is drawn to people who are far, far from God. Jesus is concerned about people who are far, far from God. He actually told these Pharisees at Matthew's party, look, it's not the healthy people who need a doctor, but the sick. I can help these folks. They're spiritually sick. So are you. And I'm here to help. The scribes and Pharisees were so judgmental that they just didn't see it. And so, in verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. He said, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and then go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And then when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all of his friends and neighbors and says to them, rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost. This first story is about a man who had a hundred sheep and suddenly realizes that one is missing. And then Jesus says kind of tongue in cheek, I mean, you know, wouldn't a good shepherd leave the 99 out in the open range and then go back and look for that one knucklehead sheep? And I think the scribes and the Pharisees and most of us would say, no. Have you lost your stinking mind? Leave 99 out of the open country to go look for one knucklehead? Of course not. You take the 99 back to the farm and you put them in a pen where they'll be safe and where your financial commitment can be secure. And then you go look for the lost one. But Jesus wants us to know. This is how he feels about that one. That one person who has lost their way. There's an urgency about that one person. Listen, he might die before I can save him if we wait that long. He loves that one so much that he would leave the 99 out in the open country to go find it. Friends, Jesus is talking about an irrational love for knuckleheads. Can I get amen? amen. <laughs> and aren't, aren't we glad? The kind of love that we all hope we find sometime in our lives. The kind of love that we hope we will all experience. That unconditional, almost illogical love. And then, man, when he finds that sheep, the good shepherd, you know, puts that lost sheep on his shoulders, carries it home, calls his friends, neighbors, come rejoice with me. My sheep that was lost had been found. Jesus ends that story by saying, just so. I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Now, right here, this verse is where we get the idea that what just happened in the baptistry here at Henderson. Uh, what just happened with Morgan three years ago out of Compassion Christian in Statesboro actually is the catalyst for a, a party that erupts in heaven. Apparently, according to Jesus, when people who have lost their way are, are somehow led back to God, that causes a celebration to break out in heaven. You th think about the day that you gave your life to Christ. You started a party in heaven. It's a cool idea when you think about it. It comes from Jesus. He tells us another story, very similar to the first. I won't read it for you. I'll just summarize it. A woman has 10 silver coins, probably representing the inheritance that she got from her family, or maybe the dowry that she received, uh, she received when she got married. It, it represents her entire fortune, her financial security for the future. It's all melted down into 10 coins. And then one day she realizes one of those coins is missing. And so Jesus asks in the story, what will she do? Well, everybody knew the answer to that. 
that coin's got to be found. And so, man, she lights every lamp in the house. She literally sweeps the floor, examining every inch of the floor till she finds that treasure. And, man, when she finds it, she calls her friends and says, man, the crisis is over. Come celebrate with me. I found that precious thing that was lost. And Jesus says again, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he tells a third story. And it's not about a lost animal. It's not about a lost item. It's about a lost son. It's one of the most famous stories in the world. It has literally been a catalyst for the art world for the last 500 years. It's the story of the prodigal son. You know, a really loving dad has two boys. One, brutally rebellious, very disrespectful, rejects the love of his father, demands his share of inheritance while his dad is still alive. Verse 12 says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. Think about the self-centeredness of this request. Uh, I mean, he's saying, Dad, I know when you die, I'll get a third of the estate. Because in a Jewish law, you know, two-thirds went to the oldest son, and then he took care of the family with that. And then one-third was split among the siblings, and it's just me and my brother. So I know I'm going to get a third. And, you know, I'm just tired of waiting for you to die. So would you just act like you're dead already and cut me into the cut I got coming? Now, now when Jesus told this story, everybody that was listening was thinking, What a fool. No father in the world would grant that crazy request to that idiot. But Jesus is trying to teach us something. We have a father in heaven who has an irrational love for us, a love like like we've never experienced before, a love that is so wise and so comprehensive that sometimes it will let us make the horrible mistakes and experience the horrible pain. That is the only way some of us learn. It says he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey to a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. Eventually, he squanders everything. He he spends it all. He loses it all. And then he hits the bottom. And listen, when he hits the bottom, his new friends all reject him. He finds himself alone, isolated, poor, hungry in a foreign country, reflecting in a hog pen on the difference between life in his father's house and the life that his selfishness and greed and lust has made for him. And at this point, when he hits the bottom, it says in verse 17, he comes to himself. Friends, the whole recovery movement in America is a reflection of this 2,000-year-old biblical principle. When you hit the bottom, when it becomes obvious to you that the pain of the path you are on is greater than the pain of getting off of it. That's when some people are motivated to change. And when this kid hits bottom, he remembers what it's like back home. He remembers that the lowest person in his father's farm is loved more and cared for better than he is. He can't believe he traded all of that for the life he's living now. And so he humbles himself. And he goes home with a contrite spirit. Imagine how humbling that would be to know how deeply disappointed your dad will be that you lost it all. You wasted your entire inheritance. You know, to give him his share of the inheritance, his dad had, his dad had to sell stuff. You know, in those Jewish families, that land had been in that family since the days of Moses. And so to cash that kid out, he had to sell stuff. Embarrassing. And then the kid leaves and loses it. He figures the best he could ever even expect 
is to live like a slave on his dad's ranch, shamed because he's messed up too much to ever be treated like a member of the family ever again. And so when he steps into that driveway, he is shocked by this proactive, irrational love and warm welcome that he receives from his dad. His dad is on the porch, and when he looks up, he doesn't go, that son of a... That's not his response. His dad smiles. His, his countenance lights up. His dad sees him, stands up, jumps off the porch, runs down the driveway toward his son. At this point, the kid doesn't know if he's going to get hugged or slugged. You know what I'm talking about? And, and his father is smiling and hugs him and kisses him and welcomes him home. The kid can't believe it. He tries to apologize. He asks for forgiveness. He's planned this talk out. He's planned it the whole way home from the foreign country. Here's what I need to say. Dad, I was a fool. I know it. You know it. I'm so sorry. Dad, uh, here's what I need to accept. I am not worthy to be treated like a son in this family. I shouldn't be considered a son in this family. Uh, Just let me be like a hired hand here. Uh, Dad, here's what I'm ready to do. I will work like one of the ranch hands on this farm because of the embarrassment that I brought to my family. Uh, uh, He's ready to go. He's got the speech. He's practiced it. He never gets to give it. His dad just overwhelms him with love. It's obvious. He's forgiven. His dad's like, hey, ring for his finger. You know, a signet ring. That's like a family credit card back in the day. He can't believe it. Nobody can. Robe for him to wear. Shoes for his feet. And then the dad throws a party so that everybody will know that my lost son has finally come home. My son who was dead to our family has come back to life. And I'm glad he's home. I'm glad he's home. Friends, I'm telling you, this kind of celebration would be so counterintuitive back in the day. Ken Bailey uh, is a scholar and a missionary who wrote an article on the prodigal son in Christianity Today magazine. He mentions a well-known ceremony that was used uh, in the Middle East when a son would incur a loss of a significant portion of the inheritance that he had received from his father. If the father died and left a bunch of estate, you know, to a son, and if that son made some foolish business decision or, or, or gambled away a bunch of cattle or land to the extent that considerable amounts of the family estate were lost, this was an affront, a shame to the entire village. And so when the village would find out about it, the, every family would gather these clay vases and they would fill them up with stones. And then they would all march out together to the place where the foolish heir lived and they'd call him out of the house. And when he came out on the front steps one by one, Every family leader in the village would take that clay vase and just smash it on the front steps of that uh, foolish heir's house. In effect saying, dude, you broke trust with the father who established that inheritance for you. And and you broke trust with the family that you should have been taken care of with that inheritance. And in in that sense, you broke trust with us. The whole community is going to have to carry your family now because you've been such a fool. And so we're breaking our relationship with you. And when that final vase was shattered, the whole village would turn their back dramatically on that foolish heir and never have anything to do with him again. That guy would be cut off, shunned by the community because of the shame that his foolishness had brought on his family. It's one of the most severe forms of civic punishment you could experience back in the day. Ken Bailey says, just the threat of it kept many a foolish son from doing some stupid thing with that family inheritance. Now, back to the story. This foolish son returns after throwing away a third of the estate, and the father extends mercy to him, embraces him. They walk back to the homestead with their arms around each other. The dad, with his arm around the shoulder of this sick, emaciated son, tears running down their cheeks together. Not only does the dad not shun him, he's not having anybody shun his son. 
he throws a party for this boy so that everybody will know, I am more thankful for my wise, humble son's return than I am disturbed by the foolish way that he left. Now, friends, let's just step back for a moment because there's a pattern we see in all three of these stories, and they tell us something about how God feels about us. Number one, in each story, a treasure of great value has been lost. It's been lost. Man, in these three stories, Jesus didn't say that the sheep made an alternative lifestyle choice. Uh, He didn't say that the coin was exerting its individuality, that the son was just doing what was right for him. He said they were lost. They were lost. Jesus loved them, but he believed they had lost their way. Consequently, they were in grave danger. Friends, there is a deep danger in being lost. That sheep was cut off from the rest of the flock and the protection and the provision that it could only enjoy as part of the flock. That coin was cut off from the purpose for which it existed, the purpose for which it was created. Consequently, it became a wasted resource, a lost value. The son, the story says, squandered his resources, wasted his life, wasted his opportunity. He learned the hard way what some of y'all are going to learn in college this year, what some of y'all are learning in college right now. You cannot party your way to a fulfilling life can be done. It's a waste. It's a waste of time, waste of life. This boy wasted his life. Which brings us to the second principle in these three stories. Man, when we treasure something that is lost, we seek it. Dude, we seek it with passion. We don't hope it comes back. We seek it, man. That shepherd goes out and searches for that lost sheep until he finds it. He wasn't willing to write a single sheep off. That woman lights up the house, sweeps every inch of the floor, looking for that lost coin. Everyone was important to her. Now, with a lost son, you can't make him come to himself. But I tell you, that father was praying every day that he would hit the bottom and repent. And when he finally does come home, his dad's waiting for him, looking for him, hoping for him, runs to make him feel loved and accepted the minute he comes home. And you know what this is like. I mean, if you've ever lost a child. uh, You know, this summer, uh, Sarah and I went out to Montana for a family reunion uh, and, you know, we started telling stories. Most of them were lies. Some of them were stories. And anyway, we're, you know, we're telling stories about when Sarah and I met. You know, and, uh, we got married 34 years ago. Uh, we met in Johnson City, Tennessee. She was from California. I was from South Carolina. Uh, man, we met in Johnson City. Uh, I, I just grew to love her. I wanted to marry her. Uh, so after Christmas, I flew out to California to meet her parents and ask her dad for his blessing and put a ring on her finger, right? And so while I was out there, I was trying to make a good impression. And so Uh, I volunteered uh, to take Sarah and all of her nieces and nephews to Disneyland. Uh, And I had a little nephew named Thomas who was about six years old at the time. And he was very athletic. And so we hung out a lot that day. And uh, actually, he spent most of the day riding on my shoulders, which was a burden because he was a chunk. All right. Uh, And, you know, we stopped late in the afternoon on this bridge. Any of y'all ever been to Disneyland? You know where this is? Uh, By the way, Mickey and Minnie told me to tell y'all, hey. But anyway, uh, we we were on this bridge, literally on the other side. See where those bushes are right there? That's where we were standing right? And so I backed up to that rail and Thomas put his feet down and stood up on that rail. And I was like, thank you, Jesus, man. I mean, you know, the weight came off for just a minute uh, and it was great. And the, you know, the, the, you know, main street parade was happening and it was all cool. And we were just looking and, and having a great old time. And it was fantastic. When I suddenly realized I did not feel his hands on my shoulders anymore. And I looked around and I didn't see him. And man, I whipped around both ways and he was gone. And immediately two things became crystal clear to me. Number one, he fell off this bridge in that river. And number two, if I didn't go get him, they were not going to let me marry his aunt, all right? And I, I was backed up against these bushes. I couldn't see a thing, man. So I just, I just like jumped over the side of the bridge, hoping my ninja skills would save both of us, man. 
And when I landed on the bank about 15 feet down, he was just crawling out of the water and crying and wet and scared and unhurt, thank God. And so I comforted him and calmed him down. And I said, son, this would have killed a lesser man. You know, me and you, we got this thing together. And I blotted him a little bit and all that stuff. And then I said, I need to teach you one of the primary lessons of manhood. Thomas, you know, some things are just between men. Uh, <laughs> this is a need-to-know thing, and your mama don't need to know, all right? <laughs> so, so let's just keep this between us, all right? Now, friends, I'm telling you, I looked up and down that bridge and finally jumped off that rail because I could not go home and tell his mama, we only lost one. I mean, you got two more kids because every child is important. Every lost son matters. Every lost daughter is a treasure, now, friends, in these stories, extraordinary efforts are made because lost people matter to Jesus. And if they matter to Jesus, they ought to matter to us. Amen? Amen? Now, there's one more principle that's in all three of these stories. When that lost treasure is found, there's a celebration, man. There's a celebration. You know, sometimes people complain about our church because we clap too much or we celebrate too much or we clap after baptism or something like that. Dude, did you notice how much celebration is going on in these stories? I mean, when that sheep is found, the shepherd calls his friends and says, celebrate with me. When that woman recovers that precious coin, she calls her friends and says, celebrate with me. When that prodigal son finally came home with a contrite spirit, counter to his culture, his father throws a party, invites all his friends, come celebrate with me. My son that was lost has been found. Now, let's hit the pause button here because it might be easy to misunderstand what Jesus is trying to say. He's not saying that a foolish son can just come home foolish and we'll celebrate. He's not saying that. He's not saying that you can come home for a little slap on the hand and go out and be a fool again. That's not what happened here. He got the reception he got because of the way he came home. Now, friends, when you break trust, when you want and need to be forgiven, there are four steps that you've got to take before the celebration of forgiveness begins. Number one, see, this is not a story about cheap grace. This is not about a slap on the hand and you're still just as foolish as ever and I got away with it. This is a story about a lost son who found his way home because reality led him to recognition. You know, it says in verse 16 that when he ran out of money, he ran out of friends. And that began a long, hard slide into pain. And dude, when he hit the bottom, and he's a Jewish man feeding hogs just to survive, wanting to eat the pods that they fed the hogs, he realized that his foolish, sinful behavior, not a lifestyle choice now, but his foolish, sinful behavior hurt him, hurt his family, hurt his community, hurt everybody. You know, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he avoided being honest about that until pain forced him to recognize the truth. He said in verse 32, my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my days with frustration. You can't be forgiven until you recognize your sin. And friends, that recognition leads to regret and remorse. Friends, nobody is going to extend forgiveness to someone who doesn't seem to regret what they've done. This, came, this kid came home with a contrite spirit. He was filled with regret for his sin. He, he was filled with remorse for what it had cost his family, cost himself. His remorse was demonstrated, you know, by his willingness to, to come back home and confess that foolishness and ask for forgiveness. 
You know, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Apparently, a broken, contrite heart is what God blesses. Remorse leads to taking responsibility. You know, that broken, contrite heart led him to say, I'm going to have to arise and own this. I'm going to have to admit what I've done. I'm going to have to apologize to my dad. I'm going to need to own this. You know, someone said that the three most difficult words in the English language are, I was wrong. Amen? I know some of y'all never said that before, so let's try it. All right, here we go. I was wrong. Okay, now the other half of y'all join us. I was wrong. Now let's say like men and women and not like little 12-year-old girls here, shall we? I was wrong. Three hardest words to say, most powerful words to say, most honest words to say. Two most difficult words to say, I'm sorry. Let's try it, everybody. I'm sorry. It didn't hurt so bad, did it? All your life you've been avoiding that? Let's try it one more time. I'm sorry. Five most difficult words to say. I'm sorry I was wrong. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's try it, shall we? I'm sorry I was wrong. Seven most difficult words to say. I'm sorry I was wrong a lot. All right. One more time, shall we? I'm sorry I was wrong a lot. Ten most difficult words to say. I'm sorry I was wrong. I was really, really stupid. Now, I don't, a lot of y'all don't believe in saying the word stupid, but, but you really are. So let's say it one more time, shall we? All right, here we go. I'm sorry I was wrong. I was really, really stupid. Friends, this is what repentance looks like. I, I'm not sorry I got caught. I, I'm sorry I was wrong. I was wrong. I can own this. Please forgive me. Please forgive me for being foolish and selfish and irresponsible with something that really matters. And you know that fourth step really helps if you can take it. Responsibility leads to restitution. I mean, basically, is there anything I can do to make amends? Who do I need to apologize to? Uh, who do I need to confess this to? Tell me, how can I clean up this mess I've made? I mean, is there something I can do? Is there something I can repair? Uh, is there something I can do to make amends for the damage I've done? Man, when the kid does this in the story, he says, Dad, I'm sorry. I don't deserve to even be considered your son. Let me work. Let me come home and work as one of the hired hands and just do what I can do to make up for this terrible mistake I've made. But you know the reality is? Some offenses are so serious, restoration can't be made. Some things you can't restore once you've taken them away from somebody. You can't restore a kid's innocence. You can't restore self-esteem. If you've taken somebody's mate, you can't restore that. But you should never underestimate the power of a sincere apology. Amen. The power of going to a person at the right time, at, with the right attitude, and say the right words. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I don't deserve forgiveness. Is there any way I can make amends to you? Usually, friends, I'm telling you, this first step is, is this is the first strong step is just to apologize to everybody who's been hurt by what you've done. Everybody who's been embarrassed, everybody who's been hurt by it, just humble yourself and just ask, I was wrong, I am sorry, please forgive me. What can I do to help make amends for this? Friends, this kid's heart was full of humble repentance. That's why his dad gave him so much 
grace. You know, justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you get less than you deserve. Grace is when you get what you know you don't deserve. And that's what this kid got. That's what his father, that's what our heavenly father gives to us when we sincerely repent. Grace. You don't deserve it. You never will. That's why it's a gift. Which brings us to the most amazing part of this famous story, and that is that we get to write the end of it. This story was not finished. Uh, Jesus didn't finish this story. Uh, There's no conclusion to this story because sadly, this father actually has two sons that are lost to him. One ran away. The other one stayed close. But even the one who stayed close was far, 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 far from the heart of his father. It says in verse uh, 25, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And he was angry, angry that the brother came back, angry that the brother repented, angry that he came home, refused to speak to him, refused to even go in. His father father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, you I never disobeyed a single one of your commands. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, but when this son of yours, you know, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, he comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. Now, like I said earlier, you know, this story is one of the most famous stories in all of literature. Shakespeare based a play on this story. The Merchant of Venice is based on this story. One of Rembrandt's most famous paintings. Many people believe the greatest painting that has ever been painted in the world is based on this story. The Return of the Prodigal. It's in the Hermitage uh, Museum in St. Petersburg in Russia. Now friends, Henry Nouwen has written a great book entitled The Return of the Prodigal and it's it's a reflection on this story as it is interpreted by Rembrandt in this painting. Now, friends, Rembrandt captures in this painting so much of the emotion that Jesus just masterfully portrays in this story. Notice the humility of the prodigal son. He comes home in rags, representing the ravages of sin on his his body, on, on his heart, on his fortune. He kneels before his father, too humble to even look up at this point. Notice the way the father leans over him. The father leans toward him. You know, he, could have, he could have repelled. He could have jumped back. He could have hands up. But notice that he leans toward this son as if to embrace him, as if to enfold him. This one son who was lost is now found. He's back in our family. Soon there will be shoes on his feet. There will be a new robe on his back. But thank God he's home. Scholars suggest that one of the father's hands is very masculine. It's very powerful. I mean, look at it. It's strong. Uh, you know, it's, a, um, it's the one on the right. It symbolizes that strong, protective love of his father. That strong love that would let him go, if that's what it takes. But that strong love that would also, after he's learned his lessons the hard way, welcome him home, bring him back home. The hand on the left, if you notice, seems to be more, more feminine. Uh, it, it seems to be more uh, gentle. And this is an attempt by Rembrandt to portray both sides 
of the love of God. We know that our Father loves us with this strong, protective, fierce love. But we also know that there's this warm, gentle, nurturing embrace, that kind of love of God. You know, God designed the family so that moms and dads would live this out in front of their families every day. You know, that that the dad would have this transcendent, fierce, protective, you know, change anything kind of love. And, And the mother would have that embracing, loving, nurturing, warm kind of love. And in the family, you know, when it's working right, you get both of those from mom and dad. It's a beautiful thing. Rembrandt paints this kind of love, this, this, this complimentary kind of love in the appearance of the hands of this father. Notice how the father and son are on a platform in the light. They've been elevated by the love of God. This is, represents how the love of God can lift one up from the ravages of sin and shame But notice also that the son and the father are off-center. They're not in the center of the painting. They're actually off to one side. Uh, And there's a gap between them and this character, the older brother. Now, there's some other folks looking on in the middle here, as there were, you know, in Jesus' story. But the light identifies the main characters. The light illuminates the father and his two sons and the rift that exists between them. This son, this son who stayed and served and seems to be faithful and yet does not reach out to the brother his dad loved so much. His hands are folded. They're in the dark, resistant. He doesn't lean toward his brother at all. His back is stiff and straight, uh, portraying a sense of superiority a sense of resentment and judgment that Jesus talks about in this parable. You know why Jesus talks about this in this parable? Because it's almost impossible to be this guy without becoming this guy. Almost impossible. I mean, you have to really, really stay sensitive to the heart of the Father once you become a Christian to not end up this guy right here. Because we all know. I mean, we, we all know, man, uh, every believer has to fight that, that sense of spiritual superiority. You, you know, we come to Jesus like this younger brother, broken, sinful, you know, aware of our sin. And then Jesus does this amazing, you know, restoring work in our life. And, and, and if you're not careful, there's a temptation to look down on people who are exactly where you were. It's crazy, I know. But that's how spiritual pride works. Every believer struggles with resentment, jealousy sometimes. Well, that son of a gun, he went to the far country, he blew all that money, he had all them women, he went to all those parties. Uh, I didn't, I stayed here and worked. But look, they're throwing a party for him. I mean, I was faithful day in and day out. Uh, Nobody's ever thrown any parties for me. (laughs) What drives that spirit of complaint, that spirit of resentment, what drives it? You hear Christians all the time. Pride, entitlement. That attitude doesn't come from godliness. It doesn't come from the Father's heart. You know, every believer will have to fight the kind of judgmentalism that we see in this older brother. He acts like he has committed no sin, and yet he dishonors his father at this party. His dad invites him in. He says, No. His dad says, love this brother with me. No. 
He won't support his father's joy. He won't support his father's mission. He hates what his father loves and yet thinks he commits no sin. That's self-deception. Look at his face. Is it tender with concern like his dad? Looking with love at this brother, thankful this poor foolish boy has repented and come home? Uh, no. That's not the look we see on that face. No, no concern. His eyes are down, but he's not looking at his brother. Y'all Google this later. You can figure this all out, all right? He's not looking at his brother. He won't even look at his brother. He wears the same robe as his dad, but he doesn't have the same heart as his dad. And that's how the story ends. <laughs> that's how Jesus finishes this story, unfinished. You know why? Because I'm in this story. I'm somewhere in this story, and so are you. I'm either this guy, and some of y'all are the prodigal son, and I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus, you need to come home. You need to come home tonight. You have fooled around enough. You know your life is not working. You need to come home. Some of us are this guy, proud, arrogant, too worried about what other people will think, what other people will say. What we need to be worried about is what he thinks. He thinks. We need to have that heart. We need to pursue that love because we've all been this guy. Amen? Amen. We've all been the prodigal son. Everybody who doesn't know that, well, you're just in denial, man. We've all been this guy. We could all become this guy unless we stay really close to our father. This story ends with a question. When we experience the Father's love, will we stay close to the Father's heart or let pride harden us and cause us to just drift away from our Father's heart? Imagine the glory that would be on his face if he had two sons kneeling here. And if this red-robed son was holding this guy up and the Father could put his hands on both sons and think, wow, my oldest son loves like I love. He thinks like I think. He cares like I care. Imagine the look on his face if this brother were holding this brother up and he had his hands on both. Jesus ends this story saying, Son, you've always been with me and all that, I, all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting for us to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. So was I. So are many of you. Some of you are dead now, lost now. You don't have to stay that way. Father, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity we've had to examine this story that has changed so many lives over the years, that shaped so many churches over the years, that has called us up and called us out. And I pray, God, that that will happen today. I pray that there will be prodigal sons and daughters who hear this message who will come home and come today. They, they will not wait another minute. I pray, God, that because of this teaching of Jesus, they will come to themselves and just be aware. They're running down a path that hurts now, and it's only going to hurt more. And I pray, God, that they will leave that path of destruction and come home. I, I pray, God, for those of us who, you know, have abused grace and, and, and become proud because of the blessings you've poured into our lives, will humble ourselves as well. And Lord, have that same heart as our Father, you know, who loves the one who is lost and 
aggressively pursues that which is lost and celebrates the salvation of that which is lost. And I pray, God, that you will, when you see us in this story, you will see us really close to your heart. Because that's where we want to be in Jesus' name. Amen.